The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, England stand in America's way. Why the world so fear Smith and unlocking the Ballon d'Or. It's Lindsay Hooper here and with me today it's Angel City's Sporting Director and former Lioness Ennia Luco, who we've not had on the show for some time because she's always busy. But Enny, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Lindsay. All good. I'm currently in London. How's life treating you over in the States when you're over there? Yeah, good. I mean, I think um, it's it's been a really long season. It's the end of the season now. You know, obviously first season for an expansion team, full of challenges, but also full of lots of firsts and lots of great experiences. I think if anyone's been to an Angel City game this year, um, it would have been an incredible experience. You know, I certainly enjoyed every single home game, you know, the diversity of the brand group, the community. There's a sort of European feel to the games that um, makes me feel quite nostalgic. So lots of lots of good things, but also lots of challenges that I hope the club can, you know, learn from next for next season. I think we can get that validated straight away as well, Annie, because Meg Linehan, um, US women's football reporter for The Athletic, who we spoke to prior to the England-USA game, is joining us for a debrief, which I thought was very brave, Meg, but I'm sure you can also validate some of what Annie was saying there. <laughs> you were nodding along. Yeah, I mean, I was at the, the Angel City home opener and I have never been to an NWSL game like that. So, and I feel very confident about saying that after 10 years of being around the NWSL. So definitely a game day experience like any other, but yeah, there's plenty to talk about on the US Women's National Team side after that game. And completing the group, we've got the UK uh, version of you, Meg. We've got Charlotte Harper from The Athletic as well. Charlotte, great to have you with us. And you've got that big beaming smile on your face. Is that because you're still riding high from that victory on Friday? Yeah, conflicted emotions, I think, on Friday. Cracking atmosphere, amazing spectacle. But with honouring the 1972 team 50 years after they were supposed to get their first cap, then protect the players, the banner and the, and the teal armbands in support of abuse of the victims of sexual abuse. And then, you know, the minute silence for the people who died in Indonesia, like I, I was crying before the kickoff. I was kind of overwhelmed with emotion of, and I spoke to Meg about this handling, especially with, with the Yates report, this, you know, the, the show and the spectacle that we saw on Friday night and these supreme athletes on the field juxtaposed with, you know, the report coming out, which just showed that there was not, there is not a safe working environment for these athletes to perform in. So for me, it was, it was very conflicted on Friday night and everybody said, like, did you enjoy the game? Oh, it must have been amazing. And it was, but I couldn't not, you know, acknowledge those three moments of dedication to those three separate events, but in particular, uh, following the Yates report. 
Yeah, and, and that was a moment of solidarity, Meg, just before kickoff. There were a littering as well of USA fans around Wembley Stadium. They weren't all in one section. I know just in front of where I was sat, we were all at the game at Wembley on Friday and we will have seen sections of supporters and it was just intense concentration and focus on a pre-match routine that I've never seen before because usually everyone just sort of filters into the stadium as the game kicks off. But there was a lot of respect for that those moments. Yeah, we it, directly in front of the the press area at Wembley, there were actually fans directly in front of us that had a banner that they had brought in that read "Protect NWSL Players." So I do think that Friday night can't be divorced from the context of the week and even the year leading into this moment, and that's what I wrote about after the game of just trying to hold all of these emotions, both the joy, right, which the U.S. Women's National Team players talked about, of trying to to find joy in these moments while also knowing that there is this much wider conversation that is going on, not just about the NWSL, but about the global game, about the youth game, all of these different levels. So it was, I think, both a happy moment and a heavy moment to Charlotte's point and trying to get through the emotion of that. I I almost had <laughs> my own personal emotions in that. And I was just like, you, you got a timeout because we do have a game to, to watch and get through. But I, I do think that it's really hard, at least on the U.S. point of view, to talk about this game without putting it in the context of everything that had happened over the last week, especially. We should absolutely point you in the direction of the Athletic website as well. If you want to find out more about the Yates report and all of the background to it, which Meg started uncovering a year ago, it's all on the website and available for you to digest. Any, you've been there, you've had to navigate difficult areas away from football, as well as having to just produce your top level on the pitch as well. Did you, did you feel for the USA team on Friday? I think that we all need to kind of get get to a point where these women can just play. They're shouldering so much. I mean, Charlotte, you're saying you're emotional just watching. These these players are experiencing it. This is some of their teammates, their friends, you know, owners, coaches that they've worked with before. And, you know, when I think back to, like, why did we all get into women's football? A lot of us, 99.9% of female footballers, do not get into the football for anything other than the joy of playing football. It's not for money. It's not for status or, or fame. I mean, it's becoming like that. But, you know, so the fact that, like, you know, they've had to deal with so much, you know, some real heavy things like sexual abuse and abuse and, you know, the equal pay fight was a long fight and, it's just a lot. I mean, I admire these women so much, but like Friday for me was like, this is what this should be about. Like an amazing stadium, two heavyweight teams, a game. And like Megan Rapino did an interview before the game and I had to kind of speak about the Yates report off the back of her. And she just seems so numb. Like she's just so used to doing a pre-match interview and talking about Yates report. <laughs> And I was like, wait, mm. this is not... She just seems so adept and accustomed to having to talk about issues that shouldn't belong on a, like, football match. Do, do you know what I mean? And I think that's what made me sad, was, like, these women have become so accustomed to having to deal with this. And she actually said, like, we've become so used to compartmentalising. 
And, you know, you, you say to me, I've been through the same, right? Like, you kind of just block it out because you just want to play. Mm. Uh, or you don't say anything. I mean, this, you know, we're alluding to some of the things that, you know, players have said. You don't say anything because you want to play or you don't want to get traded or, you know, and so for me, all of it's just a much deeper issue about the environments in which women's football has typically been created do not allow women to really truly express their truth. And when you express your truth, you're demonized for it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the players shouldn't be so great at articulating trauma, but unfortunately they are. And I, and I think that's really sad. We've only just got to the point as well, Any, where I would say that we started to talk about matters on the pitch prior to this a bit more. You know, I think we had such a successful Euro campaign. This was billed as the European champions versus the world champions. We will get on to that. But, you know, it was really, really important that we do these women justice as athletes as well and talk about what they've done on the pitch and that's what we're going to do next so 76,893 at Wembley Stadium and what an exciting match those fans were treated to well Georgia Stanway from the spot to restore England's advantage facing the penalty saving experts no problem though for Georgia Stanway the latest landmark from the Lionesses, they've overcome the number one ranked side in the world. The world champions have been beaten in this prestigious friendly. After the USA, Sophia Smith cancelled out Lauren Hemp's early goal. It was a Georgia Stanway VAR penalty that won it for England. All the goals were scored in 33 minutes, but the drama played out right until the very end. I must admit, I'm one of those people that I put my hands up. Sometimes VAR, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. But I loved it on Friday. Who loved the VAR on Friday? Meg, I'm not so sure that you will be putting your hands England. <laughs> yeah. England. I mean, I think that two of the decisions were right. And then the offside call is what's been really, really annoying to USA fans. But I do think, you know, two of the three. And I will say, even the players, like, I think that they were annoyed by it. But we'll say it's not the worst thing that we've ever seen for the U.S. Women's National Team because there was a disallowed goal right before the Tokyo Olympics from Kristen Press that was honestly one of the most beautiful goals I've ever seen in person that was whistled off by accident completely. So, like, in terms of the power rankings of, like, dumb things for U.S. <laughs> fans to be, like, legitimately mad about, it is number two <laughs> on the power number rankings. Two? So, okay. yeah. Oh. It was it was a beautifully crafted goal, Meg. And I have to admit, I was completely the other side of the stadium, Any. I don't know where your ITV position was, but I was completely the other side. And I thought, that's onside. It was so far away. But I, I just thought it was a really well-worked move. It was onside. I mean, we have the benefit in the TV studio of multiple angles and actually seeing the VAR angle. And at no angle was it offside. Like, it, it was a very good goal, which, mm. and, and Ian Wright said it in the studio, was like, well, the whole point of VAR is to call out things that are, like, really obvious, not the marginal things where it's like, we can't see the offside, like, we literally couldn't see how it could be offside. And as you said, it was such a great goal, great one fight from Sophia Smith. 
great first time ball from uh, Trinity Rodman, little back heel from um, Megan Rapino. Like that front three, I really enjoyed watching them, particularly in the first half. I thought Sophia Smith was excellent, and it was a it was a legitimate goal. And I mean, I think England got a bit lucky. I'm not complaining, but I can see why US fans would be really frustrated because it wasn't offside. It just wasn't offside. <laughs> We knew going into this that both teams had injuries to deal with. They didn't have the full personnel available that we would expect coming in at different points of the season as well. I mean, both you, Annie, and Meg, you know that you're coming to the end of your campaign. And we were talking about this, Charlotte, that, you know, the Lionesses, really all of those that have gone back to club level are only just getting started at club level. So it, it was an interesting time for them to meet. Did you think it was a game that was as close or as representative as what it could be if these two meet again at the World Cup? 10 months away. A lot a lot can happen in, in 10 months. It'll be really interesting to see where this US team is at come the new year. I know Meg will come on to speak about the number of injuries that they have and the number of players that are missing. And, you know, we've said it before, England were without Captain Leah Williamson and their number nine, Alessia Russo. However, for England, it's another step in the right direction. Speaking to Millie Bright after the game, she said, you know, that mental switch, that barrier that they've overcome wasn't after the US game. It was during the Euros, having beaten Spain, Sweden, and Germany. And it was really interesting listening to Georgia Stanway as well about that mental shift. And I don't know if you've seen the clip of Venus Williams and the reporter who's asking her, you know, why are you so confident? Like, where is this belief coming from? And I felt a bit like that of like, where has this mentality shift come from? How have you developed that mindset and the England team just speaking to them are so unwavering they're unshakable there is no sense of doubt it's not arrogance it's not swagger it's just this is us this is how we play and we've taken the game to the US and and that's what really struck me those clips that you're talking about, we've got some of those, in particular the Millie Bright and Georgia Stamway. So let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Rachel, congratulations. What does this mean for England this win? Uh, we always want to win, obviously. Um, you know, undefeated again still, under Serena. Um, it's massive for us. We always want to win. Um, and the US are a great side. We know that. World champions for a reason. So um, it was a good test for us because obviously we've only just faced European sides recently. Um, so, yeah, big test for us, but a massive win. I understand we're not going to get carried away. It's one game. Well, it comes yeah. 10 months away. But the last time we beat the US is 2017. Yeah. You've had a lot of defeats or draws against them is this yeah. a, a real a psychological like yeah we've made that mark again overcome that barrier yeah I think you could say but I think coming into this game we weren't in a we weren't in a weak stage mentally I think we were in a really strong position mentally and physically coming into this game and obviously off the back of our success and you know the, the point which we're at as a team is really good on and off the pitch so yeah I don't think we came into this game with a weak mentality I think we were confident in our in our game plan and what we could execute out there so um, I think to be honest we'd already overcome that barrier before this game which is, is really really nice for the group so it was nice that we could go out there and enjoy it and 
just going back, when did you think you did overcome that then? Um, probably the summer. I think everything in the summer and improving to ourselves a level that we can play out the football that we can play and winning a, a major trophy. It's, um, yeah, you kind of on equal grounds almost. So yeah, two two top teams coming together as a clash, and as you can see, it's a great game. What did you learn? <laughs> that we can put on a good show. Um, yeah, I think there's still extra gears that we can turn it up to, um, and there's still areas that we can improve. Um, but at the same time, I think the stats might say a lot, um, and obviously the possession stats as well. So you can see how we like to how we like to play. Um, but yeah, there was moments in that game that were challenging for us, um, especially when we're trying to build up and trying to play out from the back. Um, they obviously went man for man, which caused us some problems. So we've got something to work on, something to obviously take back to the training pitch um, and find solutions. There we go. And you talk about mentality shift. We've got to go to the former Lioness for that, I think, Kenny. Have you found it a sizable shift? Is this all down to Serena? Yeah, honestly, I think that that is the biggest thing I can see in this team from when I played. And even from like, you know, the previous World Cup in 2019, where England got knocked out um, by the US, it was, you know, there's the fearlessness to this team now. There's a sort of assuredness to the England team where you just feel like they're going to win. The predictions before the game was all England. I think, you know, it may have been a different game if Alex Morgan and Sophia Smith played because I don't think England dealt with US the US press very well. I thought the US's press was very good. I think if Alex Morgan played, maybe it would have been a slightly different test for the back, back four. But the, the, the character that I think this England team has, as Charlotte says, because of the Euros and winning the Euros. But you've got to put the difference down to the coach. You have to. You know, I said when Serena Bergman was um, hired that just her presence of being someone who's been there, done it and won. I know as an England player, I would have been like, I'm just going to hang off every word she says because she's done it. She's won. She's done what we dream of, right, with the Netherlands. So the the level of kind of um, intuitiveness between the players and the coach, I think would have led them to this point where they're just like, we believe in everything we do so much that they go out on that pitch and they give it, they, they just, they just give it their best. So I think Selena Weigman is the difference. She, you know, she's mm. won it before. She's taken the team from semi-final to final and obviously to, to gold. And I don't think other coaches, well, they, they didn't, you know, Phil Neville, Mark Sampson, they weren't able to get that done. They did not have the ability to change the minds of, you know, uh, for example, when we got to the semi-final or the final in 2009, I remember being like, oh my God, we got to the final. Like, I was so happy with that. Just because that's what we were conditioned to think. Like, England never win anything, so just be, like, happy with this. Whereas you can see in the players, like, nothing but winning was ever going to be satisfactory. And I think that's a real mentality shift. And this is a characteristic that we're so used to seeing with the US team. Yeah, that unshiftable winning mentality. So where are they at, Meg? You know, you spoke to some of the players afterwards. Do they feel they've met a team that have matched them on that level? I don't even know if that was really a part of the conversation because I think 
this this little away tour was scheduled with such a different intent than what it's actually turned into, right? Where now we have the report, the Spain game is going to be a very different match than what was intended, right? So I think going in, the narrative was very easy and clear. And then after the game, like, this is a team where when I have seen them lose, they get really heated about it. Like, there is the sense of unacceptable. And I think that the the comments that we got were disappointed, yes, but, like, not to the extent that we've seen when they have thought, like, our performance was really terrible. So, again, you know, I made this point last week, too, of, The team is in a different space in terms of preparation for the World Cup. They just are in terms of what the CONCACAF W Championship gave them for preparation is very different, obviously, than Euros. And to be fair, club seasons are in different points. But also, I think the players, (laughs) we've had the craziest NWSL regular season I think we've ever had. And the schedule has been brutal for a lot of players. So I think that there was a sense of, okay, Maybe this week has changed in terms of what we're trying to get out of it. So Becky Sauerbrunn, for instance, the team captains, was still just trying to reaffirm, like, we think we are at where we should be at right now at this point before the World Cup. So I think the Spain game is going to be interesting. I think maybe the two home games against Germany are going to be finally that test that they actually wanted. But I think there's one big tactical takeaway from the England game, which is that the midfield as it is supposed to work right now is not really working. And part of that is because you can't replace Julie Ertz. <laughs> like she is a she is a player that has no one-to-one likeness. So that there is maybe this question of could you swap to a 4-2-3-1 and and maybe put in two sixes and try to make up for her that way? Or, you know, do you have to consider that the eight has to have more response. Like there are good tactical questions, I think, coming out of this game that hopefully Vlako Andonovsky is looking at. There are big questions about what the final center back pairing is going to be in 2023. But to to any point, Sophia Smith and I think Naomi Gurma was the other player that was truly, truly impressive for the U.S. Women's National Team. And I think that was really reassuring <laughs> on both points. So even despite the loss, I think there was the sense of the kids are ready for games like this and for moments like this, and they're only going to get better over the next 10 months. Serena Wiegmann said post-match, and certainly in a press conference since, that she felt there was still a lot for England to work on as well. We know that some high-profile players have moved out. Charlotte Anenny, she's obviously going to have to get a new team clicking together in the next 10 months. Did we see the starts of that, of who, what that team might look like? I certainly felt that it was a bit of a shift from the Euros in the summer. There wasn't really the impact substitute that we were used to when we had Alessia Russo. Obviously, she wasn't included because she'd got an injury. Did we see anything that would give us an indication of someone that's going to either break into the team or stay there for this time next summer? I think the um, 91st minute substitute uh, was actually quite telling. We know that Serena Wiegmann doesn't make substitutes for the sake of it. And I think that was a nod to Lauren James of saying, you know, you've performed well in what uh, Wiegmann has seen of her and I expect Lauren James to you know be in Wiegmann's plan in in the future again Alex Greenwood we didn't see her hardly at all during the Euros she didn't start coming in at centre-back it'll be interesting to see when Williamson comes back whether Greenwood will move out to left-back but 
again, 10 months, it's a long time. And as Wiegmann said today in her press conference, there's, you know, players competing for minutes and the door is still open to them, but they have to fight for it. In terms of strikers, we saw Lauren Hemp having that number nine role because I think Ellen White is going to be a huge void to fill. Was the part of you that was surprised that Rachel Daly wasn't given that opportunity? Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, I don't understand why Rachel Daly is still playing as a left-back when she has consistently scored goals both for Houston Dash over the years and immediately is banding goals for Aston Villa. Two very competitive leagues where she scores goals. So I think the depth issue around the forward line is is there now that Ellen's gone and rightly so she's going to be a difficult player to replace particularly in major tournaments because Ellen was always so good in major tournaments I don't understand why Rachel is never Bailey's never given her a chance up front I think she should be I think she's a very good forward different type of profile I think she'd be great on the press works really hard and, and knows where the goal is I think Ebony Salmon as well is another one that I was really happy to see her in the squad. Um, I tried to sign her at Angel City, didn't quite, think wasn't really, I'm a huge fan of hers. And as soon as she got to Houston, I think she's responsible really, her goals are responsible for getting Houston to the playoffs for the first time ever. So she's a top, top player, did the same at Bristol and WSL um, two years ago. So I think players like Ebony Salmon, I'd like to see them given, you know, a, a bit more of a, a chance. She gets called up, but never seems to play any minutes. So just that it creates that forward, that competition in the forward line that means that Ellen's absence is not felt as much because it is a lot of responsibility. You know, I, I, I played in that position for 11 years at England and sometimes you need that, you know, you need that competition to give you a break. It, you know, and, and to push you and, and to keep you on your toes because if it's just your number and you think that it's your position, you're not always alive to the fact that actually you could lose your spot at any time. So those are the two players that I'd love to be seen given more of a shot, Rachel Daly and, and Ebony Sam. I think in terms of stats from this game, one of the things that I thought was quite striking, Meg, was it was the USA's lowest share of possession in an international fixture for six years. Has that been picked up on in the States a lot? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other troubling thing is, I remember talking to Vlako Andonovsky, and this was, I mean, probably six, eight months into when he had the job. And, you know, this is going to be a the answer that probably any manager is going to give in terms of like, what is your style of play? And that is to to impose your style of play upon the opponent, whether or not you have the ball. And I think that they were successful in some points, again, to, to Annie's point, the high press, Sophia Smith working the high press really, really looked threatening a lot of the time. The the Also, the Sophia Smith goal came from Lindsey Horan forcing the turnover, right? So that is where the U.S. and the fitness of the U.S., I think, still really works in terms of being able to to just go all in on a high press for a significant chunk of the game. But in terms of, again, I think it just kind of boils back down to the midfield not feeling super connected. And, you know, Rose Lavelle got lost, I think, for a few chunks of the game. Andy Sullivan felt like she was on an island for really pretty much, I think, the entire game. 
And I think that there's, you know, you're not necessarily concerned about that possession number if there are still significant chances moving forward. But then you look at that second half performance and you're like, it's not really happening. <laughs> it's not really happening mm-hmm. for them. And that's where I think the the concern is. But again, that's where I think it is instructive to have a game like this. You know, Vlako Andonovsky again before before the game said, no one's going to remember if we lose this game, but then go on to win the World Cup, which I do fundamentally disagree with. But I don't think that the 2019 World Cup performance happens without that loss to France in France. And this was not as dramatic a loss. It was, I think, still a fairly close, good game, right? It wasn't like the U.S. was going over to France and then kind of getting like rudely smacked in the in the face, which is what happened in 2019. But these are the kinds of performances where you get numbers like that and then you have to pick apart why they happened. And the U.S. doesn't frequently get opportunities like that. And this is only going to, if they take advantage of it, make them better. Yeah, and USA's first defeat in 22 games. You imagine there's going to be a huge debrief on their part for that. England now unbeaten in 23 under Wiegmann, but it was narrow. It was a VAR call away from being a draw, let's face it. So I'm sure that both teams will be going away and wondering where they can improve for the next 10 months to just take it on that extra level. One of the things that we spoke about were the 1972 tributes at the top. It was a moment where I I made sure I rushed out to be in the stadium to see that happen. The, The caps given to these pioneers that played the very first England international 50 years ago. As part of that, Any, there was also a celebration event where all former Lionesses, well, I say all, but we thought all former Lionesses had been invited to a Legends Lounge. It's since materialised that Leanne Sanderson said she didn't receive an invite and also had her name misspelt. The FA have come out and apologised. They said that she was invited. Errors have happened and misjudgments that you've also been on social media and said they, they often happen more than once to the same people. It's so sad, isn't it, that she got to miss out because it must have felt so alienating for her not to have, even if she had have been included in the, and it hasn't got to her in the post or whatever that is, the way that she would have felt would have been awful. Yeah, and, and that's that's it, Lindsay. It's like, you know, we, we can't continue to... And, I, and I'm sure, you know, there's, there's, in, there's well intentions, you know. I don't think there's... A, I, I'd like to think no one sat there in a sinister way and said, let's exclude Leanne Sanderson. But the reality is, is that she feels very excluded. She doesn't feel honoured. She doesn't feel valued. Her name is spelt wrong. The detail, the things that if you care enough, that's just a given, right? And so we've just moved on from that. And I think if you are doing something like that, where you are celebrating all the women that have put on an England shirt from 1970s up until now, if you're going to do it, do it properly, right? And include everyone. And, you know, if Leanne didn't receive the email, make sure somebody, her agent or Leanne, has said, I can't come while I'm working. Like, make sure that is definite because making assumptions or saying, oh, we sent it in the post, it got lost in the post. I mean, we've heard that old chestnut before, Right. And the repercussions of that are that somebody feels excluded. And, you know, I'm very passionate about inclusion and what that actually feels like 
you know, we talk about it a lot. We talk about diversity inclusion, but like the real life opportunities to actually show that are Friday night. It, it's it's everybody from different backgrounds, from different generations who've played for England, feeling part of this one team. And I think that's just another missed opportunity for for that inclusion piece. Um, which is why I said these are the opportunities, see these as opportunities to really live out these values. So it was disappointing. It, it's not the first time for Leanne, unfortunately. You know, the FA forgot her 50th cap as well. So these are things where we, we have to address it. We have to acknowledge it. I recognise the FA apologised very quickly, which is good too. That's progress as well. But whoever's in charge of these events that really celebrate history, they have to do better. They just have to do better. There's no, there's no getting around it. Because I think with social media as well, these things become big issues. And actually, if you just get it right, everyone just has a great night and celebrates the FA and celebrates their contribution. And everybody, you know, everybody feels like it was a special night for them. Instead, it's a night where Leanne was so upset and it's become a you know conversation. And so I think we just need to do better with those things. I'm going to leave that there. But thank you very much, Annie, for for saying that, because, yeah, you're right. It's not an oversight that we want to see happen ever again. Other World Cup contenders, Germany, they beat France 2-1 on Friday. Uh, That was thanks to two Alex Pop goals. And the Olympic champions, Canada, beat Australia 2-1. Meanwhile, USA's next opponents, who we already mentioned, Spain, drew one all against Sweden, even without 15 of their players. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Coming up, England play the Czech Republic in a friendly on Tuesday. That's dedicated to the Let Girls Play campaign, trying to get every girl equal access to football. Uh, The Euro-winning side have just met Prime Minister Liz Truss on Monday. They're holding a meeting with Williamson and Wuben Moy about that open letter. Uh, Lucy Bronze could win her 100th cap in that game as well. How did you feel about them finally meeting the Prime Minister, Any? It felt a little bit late on, seeing as the Euros were 31st of July when that trophy was lifted. And I think Liz Truss was probably too busy, right? She's only just been appointed, <laughs> so couldn't fit the England team in their diary, I'm, I'm sure. Um, probably had better things to deal with, like, you know, the cost of living crisis, you know? But, um, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's great that the England team is recognised, you know, by um, government and supported by government and I thought what the England team did in terms of bringing out a very important issue around girls' accessibility to the sport, you know, that's something where they can work in partnership with government to fix and, and, and provide a solution to. So hopefully it's not just a photo opportunity, it's actually the start of hopefully a relationship that Liz Trust can sort of really take seriously and take on board some of the things that really matter to the players. World Cup spots are up for grabs on Tuesday. We should move on to that as well. Uh, Wales could reach their first major tournament if Jess Fishlock produces another stunner against Switzerland. And Scotland need to overcome the Republic of Ireland. Uh, The winners will be ranked and the top two automatically get a World Cup spot, but the third enters another playoff. After that, we're back into the WSL this weekend. Leaders Arsenal travel to Reading. Everton hosts holders Chelsea and a second place Man United welcome Brighton. Plus... 
Can Aston Villa stay third as they host West Ham? Who will get their first win of the campaign as Man City play Leicester City? And how are newbies Liverpool going to fare when they travel to Spurs? Charlotte, in terms of key games here, which one are you pointing us in the direction of? Everton hosting Chelsea. I'm looking forward to that one. Especially uh, Brian Sorensen, the new Everton manager, coming up against Panilla Harder. He coached her from a youth player upwards and, you know, her scanning, her touches on the ball, that was very driven by Brian when he really wanted to focus on the, on the individual and getting the individual training up uh, in um, his native country. So, yeah, eyes on that one for me. Any when the building blocks to Villa's success were being put in place, you were there. You were there as a sporting director. So is it no shock to you that they're currently third? I'm so proud, honestly. Like I'm so proud of what Villa are doing right now. That was the whole point, right? Like when I was hired by Christian Perslow, he said, keep us in the league so that we can build and become an established WSL club. And that's what's happened. You know, first season was about staying in the league, being, you know, we went into games against Chelsea, Arsenal, Man City, knowing we are going to lose. Like, literally knowing we were going to lose and having to keep the score down. So it was about beating the teams around us and then staying in the league so that they could build. And that's exactly what they've done. Carla Ward has built, you know, brought players in like Rachel Daly. And now they're beating Man City, you know. So I see the I see the sort of progression that, you know, I I started, you know, in coming in and in um, in that season, which was such a tough season because it was the height of COVID. So I'm so proud to see where Villa is right now. I dropped Carla a text actually the other day and, you know, just said like this is what was meant to happen, right? Like this is mm. you're doing exactly what the journey was meant to do. And, you know, I know at that club they're sort of quietly ambitious. You know, Villa will want to finish as high as possible um, and challenge great facilities for the players, you know, um, a really professional environment. Um, so they've got everything they need to to continue pushing. I think Rachel Daly, I was actually quite surprised when Rachel Daly signed for Villa because Rachel Daly could sign for you know, a big club. She could sign for a Man United or a Man City but I, th- I think it was a measure of where Villa are that they could sign Rachel. And then obviously I think that's that's paid off really well so far. So really, really proud of what Villa are doing. I, I keep an eye on them all the time. We are going to look further ahead as well to Monday. As it's the Ballon d'Or, we are going to do buy one, bench one, sell one from the list on the Ballon d'Or because sometimes these people that put these lists together, any of you know this, sometimes they get it very right Sometimes they get it wrong. So it's all a bit of fun. But you buy one is perhaps who you would vote for, who you give the Ballon d'Or to. Your bench one, maybe an impact sub, someone that's had a good season or could potentially maybe win it another year but isn't the one for this one. And sell one, speaks for itself. They got it wrong, shouldn't be on the list. So here are the names. Selma Bakker, Eitana Bonmati, Millie Bright, Lucy Bronze, Kadidatu Diani, Christiane Endler, Ada Hegerberg, Marie Antoinette Katoto, Sam Kerr, Katerina Macario, Beth Mead, Viv Miedemar. Alex Morgan, Lena Oberdorf, Asisat Oshawola, Alexandra Pop, 
Alexia Pateas, Wendy Renard, Trinity Rodman and Fridolina Rolfo. Oh, wow, we got through the list. Oh, I just about did. What do we think then in terms of big contenders? Who are you buying, Meg? I mean, I think the answer is probably still pretty clear in that Alexia has dominated awards. And I think there's no reason to think that this one would be any different. So you're going Alexia Pateas. Three of these players on this list have done their ACL, by the way. Uh, Charlotte, yours? I'm going Aitana Bonmati. Any? Oh, Charlotte, you took my name. Um, <laughs> you can go for uh, the same one. Uh, I don't want to copy. I don't want to copy Megan Charlotte. To be fair, Basha, I think, had an amazing Champions League final. She's a young player, you know, already playing at Lyon. I think she'd be a great sort of uh, buy. If, if, okay. if, if, yeah, I think out of the names you've read, she'd be a good one. We'll go back the other way then on benching. So who are you benching, Any? Ah, this feels a bit harsh (laughs) to bench someone. We haven't got to selling yet. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go for Trinity Rodman. Rodman's been one, a player that I found really interesting to watch this season for Washington. Like, she can be so good. And then if she mentally checks out, she's just, you know, she's quite frustrating sometimes. So, but then was really good on Friday, I think, against England. So I think she'd be one on bench because you can either get really good or really frustrating from Trinity Rodman, I think. Fine. Charlotte, yours. I'm going to bench Lucy Bronze and bring in Kira Walsh. Mainly because uh, Lucy said so um, pretty much on her Instagram. Like, it was ridiculous that Kira Walsh is not on that Ballon d'Or list. It's absolutely ridiculous. For me, like this is a uh, like I'm approaching this as a, as a player who I think could potentially win this award in the in the future, right? Who is maybe not quite at that yeah. level. For me, the the player that I am most excited about, and this is going to be very American centric of me, but Katarina Macario is, I think, one of the big future players on this U- U.S. Women's National Team. Do I think she's ready to win this award this year? No. Do I think that she is fully in the mix for future awards? Maybe twenty three, twenty four, right? A hundred percent. So for me, she is really the player. I mean, she she has been a key piece for Lyon, right? First American to score a goal in Champions League final. And that to me is, you know, so maybe not a starting 11 player off of this list of 20, but she's, she's potentially got a, a huge future upside. And who shouldn't be on this list at all? Charlotte? Uh, I'm going to sell Fridolina Rolfo. Ooh, any? Oh, Lucy Bronze. I mean, it sounds bonkers because Lucy's won it before and has been amazing for so many years, but I don't think she had an amazing year. This is the thing that frustrates me the most about the Ballon d'Or, particularly in the women's game. It's like, it, it cannot be performance-based. I mean, if, if Kira Walsh is not on the list, you know, I don't, I don't know whether it can truly be performance-based and I don't think Lucy necessarily had individually I think team-wise she did but individually she had the best the best Mm -hmm. season and if you sell her you'll probably get a few bob for her (laughs) (laughs) you probably would that's your sporting director director talking here (laughs) commercial Uh, sense (laughs) yeah bronze bronze was my pick here as well for a lot of the same reasons but also 
I think this award is really tough because part of the voting parameter is like an overall view of the career, which I think has made it a very strange award, especially on the women's side, because you do get that name recognition career factor. So it is such a this is not just a who had the best last year. And also, I mean, I think it would be really interesting. Obviously, Kira Walsh should be on this list. But again, as a person who watches NWSL, a person who I think should be up for like every single award ever is Dabinia. Like Dabinia is truly one of the best players I have ever watched in my life. And I don't understand why she does not get the recognition on the international stage that she deserves. Annie was fiercely nodding along as you said that. <laughs> I love Dabinia. Love her. I think the parameters have changed for this Ballon d'Or. So it's season-based only, whereas previously it was calendar year. And someone like Wendy Renard, for example, should have won Ballon d'Ors in the like last 10 years. The problem is defenders don't get recognition. Mm-hmm. But Wendy Renard has won eight Champions League titles. And, you know, she has rarely got the praise that she deserves to stay at that top level time and time again, not only for her club, but her country. But it's very kind of controversial if she wins the Ballon d'Or because, yes, she won the Champions League again and France made the semis. But did she have an outstanding performance from an individual basis? Not necessarily. But again, defenders versus strikers, goals and assists get the headlines and defenders roles or even kind of deep uh, midfielders like Kira Walsh don't get the recognition. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting how this plays out on Monday especially as commercial value goes through the roof once you've won the Ballon d'Or. Like Alexia Puteas from a kind of social media sponsors, brands, before she won the Ballon d'Or was minimal and it explodes once you win this title. So interesting to see how, how it goes. I can't wait to see how all of that does progress on the night. That is all we've got time for for this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Thank you to Any, Meg and Charlotte. Thank you at home as well for listening. Keep spreading the word. Get in touch as well if there's anything burning that you want to get off your chest. Goodbye for now. The Athletic.